0: Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to The Creationarium, where we deep dive into the aquarium of human creativity and ingenuity. I'm your host, Aaron, from the Thrush and Treasure Podcast, and in our 49th episode with the Queen, Caroline O'Connor, I lightly touched upon a story from the Australian film industry, and so I've spun that off into a new show as you do, where we'll expose the hidden figures and stories where people have banded together to create something magical. And so in this first season, we're going to flesh out the little known story of how the Power Rangers accidentally saved the Australian film industry. And joining me for this cinematic adventure is one of the mighty movie Power Rangers himself. He's a sound technician who was one of the many inexperienced crew members thrown into the deep end to create Australia's first big-budget CGI-laden film. But it was their individual expertise that exercised and exorcised that Arthur mentioned inexperience when the Aussie can do attitude took over. But I don't want to spoil all the good bits. So, here to continue his story from last episode is Mr. Paul Matthews.
1: Holy for spare parts of my ooze bottle. So, yeah. Which was the ooze bottle. It was the bottle that, that
0: Ivan used.
1: Ivan yeah. used. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> We're drawing a picture of the difference. I mean, nowadays, no one cares because they don't build these big sets anymore. So nowadays right. they all just do it, do it on on in the box. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it was back then. So
0: now, well, in terms of the showgrounds, as we were talking about before, and turning that into the studio at the time, I think it was '98. They opened it as a quote unquote theme park, which wasn't a theme park. It was just a backlot. It was just it was the shopping part of a fucking theme park. That
1: was disastrous. I they took up the whole of the commemorative pavilion with that silly Titanic ride they destroyed a whole lot of the showground that we believe should not have been destroyed they did actually take our babe set finished shooting and they used that the uh, babe outdoor set in uh, in fox's studio which i actually had to they got me to quote going back in and rewiring it against it in such a way that they could actually light it up and use it as a real life place instead of just a film set yeah but uh i think that lasted about a year and a half i'm surprised it lasted as long as it did because it was all made of just like just as a film set it would have been eaten by ants by the time they got rid of it <laughs> i do remember in that production as i say lots of uh wonderful times they had the moat going through the middle of the street and of course all the cabling and everything would run under the bridges between one side of the street and the other so it was always for some reason fell to me to do that to actually run those cables under those bridges so for a long time in summer there was one electrician running around in nothing but speedos and that was me because I was always having to jump in the bloody thing and (laughs) run the cables under the bridges so I don't know. Colin used to go on about the naked, naked electrician. I
0: don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing the tourists weren't there at the time. No, the tourists
1: weren't there for well,
0: that. The, the few tourists that would have gone to that place. Yeah, it was. It always disappointed me how that... I, re- I remember that opening night and Kylie Minogue sang opera. Yeah. And they did that spectacular thing. And we knew Moulin Rouge was being made there, but we didn't know anything about it because obviously Baz Luhrmann had directed that opening and it was still, what, two or three years before Moulin That's Rouge right. yeah. Yeah. was due to come out. His red curtains he's read yeah he's red curtain trilogy um with uh strictly ballroom and romeo plus juliet
1: i and always tell everyone okay yeah well i'll let catherine have the uh the oscar for that one i wasn't going to yes you've said that to England me to ensure it
0: yeah Yeah, and it's funny that you guys, or at least you personally, had no clue what was going on because I asked Caroline O'Connor in um, my interview with her how many times they, as a cast, stepped back and went, "What the hell is he talking about?" And she found not very much because Baz was so descriptive in how he was directing, like he knew the vision that he
1: he always knew what he wanted. And Catherine was same. Catherine was like his right arm regarding all the design work. But yeah, we didn't know what the story was. Like we couldn't really understand what the story. Oh, the story. It's a story about love. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What was that shoot like compared to obviously the Power Rangers, where you guys didn't know what you were doing necessarily in terms of making a film? But by this point, you do know what you're doing. Yes. But at the same time, you don't know what you're doing because you have no idea what the bloody director's doing. We we know
1: we know what we're doing, but we don't know why. Yes, that's 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 really the case with Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge was an enormous production I had five people working under me on that one Catherine was great she would come in and see when we were we'd done up a set like the main hall or something like that and say, okay Catherine what do you think she'd look around and say oh okay all those little globes they look really nice but can you put another globe in between all the ones that are there and it's like for fuck's sake you know (laughs) There's 300 on that bloody shelf alone. So you want us to put another 300 in there? And and it just went on. Uh, I don't know whether you remember that that big Hindi set on the stage at the end of that show. Yeah. They've got these hearts which have got lights all over them. That that actual um that actual heart that sits behind directly behind um uh Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman as she comes up out of the floor.
0: Satin. Yeah. Satin.
1: That's right. That heart. They put a full size stencil on my desk and said, "Okay, can you put a light?" You see where each of these diamonds are. Can you put a light where each of these diamonds are? And I had one look at it and think, you have got to fucking be kidding. Where are we going to hide the cables? Where are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? You know, so I took the thing home sweated over it one night and I thought about a a method of construction that I'd done when I was back when I was a kid making uh, little spaceships out of big cardboard boxes that my dad would bring home from work and that would basically consist of these little lamp holders with bits of copper soldered together and I thought I wonder if that would work for this so anyway I got a whole heap of them ordered from the wholesaler and I uh, got them couriered out to my workshop at St Mary's and got a whole heap of copper wire started soldering some of it together with the on to the uh, stencil can't remember her name now one of the dresses rings up a short while later and say Oh, we don't we've decided we want something else for that now. You can stop working on it. We don't want that now. Oh bugger. <laughs> and and I I say, okay, that's fine. Hang up the phone yeah. and have a look at it and think, fuck, I'm gonna finish this thing anyway. I was on it most of the night. I think I finished about three o'clock in the morning, took it back in about 10 o'clock the next day and uh and set it on the, the metal frame that they'd made for it, which was the same size as the stencil, mm-hmm. and it fit perfectly. Lit it up, it looked like a million bucks. Catherine walks in, has a look at it and says, holy shit, that's exactly what we want. So it's in the film. And as far as I know, it's one of those set pieces which they've kept forever. It's still it's still hanging in a Hall of Fame somewhere. They still use it.
0: And they wouldn't have if you weren't stubborn.
1: If I hadn't finished it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I charge them for it. They paid for it at the end. It was only about 2000 Similar story, those big hearts that are on the, on the set, but the, they come on. At the end, they turn into this big chase. And they chase around all over the place. I remember we were wiring those and I, I talked to the set dressers and they said, look, do you want these things to chase or are they just going to come on? And of course we said, look, it's going to cost us more if we chase them because it's going to need three lots of cable and a lot, a lot of time for the guys to do it. and it's going to be hard to fit it in the, in the set and so on. No, no, we definitely don't need them to chase. You can just have them come on. That's fine. Anyway, I, I decided I'd wire them to chase just in case. And, of course, at the end of the show, oh, wow, that looks fantastic. Oh, I didn't yeah. know they could chase like that. I guess you could say you've <laughs> got to leave something in your Felix bag to pull out and sort of you say, do. hey, yeah. we can do good work. But then, hey, we can do friggin' good work, too, you know.
0: Yeah. Now, during those filming days, how much were you on set in costume hidden amongst a whole bunch of extras just bl- blending in or hidden behind them all? Or-
1: Being on set was one of the things that I used to hate the most. Um, I used to hate being on set or being called to set because every every time something important that I built was used, I'd be called to set. So that means I need to be there. And and set on a big film is an incredibly stressful place to be Mm -hmm. because nothing happens ninety nine point nine percent of the time.
0: Yeah, it's hurry up and wait. Yeah,
1: bored out of your brains Mm. until suddenly something happens and everyone. (laughs) <laughs> looks at you, and uh, like this happened a number of times on Power Rangers with, the, with the, uh, the Zords and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden, at $100,000 a minute or whatever the case may be, everyone is looking at you and they are expecting you to jump up out of your sleepy stupor and fix the problem so fast they won't even notice <laughs> and if you imagine you're in that constant state of readiness all the time, 12, yeah. 14 hours a day, you're just, you're just trying to stay in this constant state of, hey, I'm doing nothing, but I may be required to do everything within seconds, any second. I used to hate it. There was quite a lot of times on Moulin Rouge when I was on set one end working on stuff while they were shooting the other side. Now, if every time I hear Roxanne, I have this shiver that goes down my spine because I must have heard that a hundred times.
0: A good shiver or a bad
1: shiver? It's just like a shiver. Like you're in a dark pavilion and you hear nothing and just, Roxanne! And yeah. again and again and again and it just echoes because every time they call for uh for quiet you'd have to shut up doing what you're doing so yeah. we were literally working at 50 capacity so you know we could only uh we can only work on drill holes and put fittings in when they said cut So yeah. so when they said you know action we had to shut up and you just hear this echo around what was a huge building a darkened building you know so it just sends shivers down your spine you think well. Oh. I remember that. I remember where exactly where I was when I heard that very sound. I hear him, I hear him singing it on, on set and thinking, oh, I'm there right now. I'm right there in that bloody hall. You yeah. know? hearing it again and again and again, you know.
0: I am so jealous because that film is such an achievement in Australian filmmaking. And
1: it was, it was. I think it was the pinnacle it of what was. we were able to do in Sydney. I think yeah. that was that was when we were really firing on all fours and it was all happening when, when Baz shot that. That was the same time, you know, like we'd done a whole heap of sh- shots in succession. There was other films going on at the same time as that was going on. Yeah, it was it was a real moment when everything was happening.
0: Yeah. And like, obviously, we, 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 as we've established, there was the whole grinding the teeth on the Power Rangers. Me. Uh, but for our film industry, when you look at Australian films, Before uh, 2009, before 2001, the biggest sort of budget films, okay, we had Dark City, but that whilst an Australian director in Alex Proyas and Babe, I think those special effects were done overseas.
1: Yeah, no, I never worked on Babe 1, that was before my days.
0: I'm, I'm pretty certain those, the Babe 1 special effects were done overseas. Babe 2 possibly, here, like I can believe here in Australia, but I'm fairly certain, because I was trying to do as much research as I could, yep. I'm fairly certain those ones were done overseas and the Power Rangers movie was the first sort of big, like here's going to be big explosions and, you know, big monsters and stuff like that. And even though it does look cheap and and or campy and and stuff like that, now... Back in 95, as a 10-year-old, I wasn't thinking, dude, that looks so shitty. I was thinking, wow, that's awesome, you know? Like, the, the guy getting thrown into the, or the, the ooze monster getting thrown into the, the grate. He splits up into bits of jelly or whatever, like, as a kid. What, what happened with
1: Power Rangers, more than anything else, is they just ran out of money. They wasted so much money. They wasted money building entire sets that were never shot on. And this this isn't in my blog, but one of them they shot was uh, they built a suspension bridge and it was a full size suspension bridge, which was supposed to go over this river uh, on uh, planet Fados. And this is where they were supposed to fight the uh, the Tengu warriors when they arrived. Uh, it was originally supposed to happen and they built the thing. They literally had it set up in a green screen ready to shoot just before Christmas and it didn't happen. And then they just they, they demolished it just soon after that. And it was never used, but it must have cost them at least like a couple hundred thousand to build. Goodness but they so wasted so much money on that production, having to reshoot stuff, reshoot stuff because of the visors, reshoot yeah. stuff because of a certain actor who uh, had a cyst who couldn't be removed. Uh, I don't know oh, whether really? you, you heard that story. No the master warrior of Fados.
0: Gabriel Fitzpatrick?
1: Gabriel Fitzpatrick was the one who ended up playing it. Gabriel yeah. initially auditioned for the part and got it. Yeah. Then she was diagnosed shortly after that with an ovarian cyst oh. and had to go for an immediate operation. So she had to come off the production. When that happened, they recast the role with um, Mariska Hargitay and they shot a whole heap of footage, especially at the Chinese gardens in Sydney, uh, probably two weeks worth of shots for principal photography in like early November with her. Anyway, that all hit the floor because they realised that she wasn't the right person for the role. And by the time they realised that, the other girl had recovered and she came exactly. back and did yep. the job. But they didn't mean to say that they hadn't wasted two weeks worth of short footage in making that decision. So yep. a lot of the footage that they shot in November uh, never made it to the screen and they just wasted so much money and by the end, it's just some of that money had been kept for the end, where they could, you know, make build a proper model, and uh, and spend a little bit more on the CGI. Then yeah. I think it really would have been a, a a memorable film that it was originally designed to be, but uh, just just poor management just just killed that. It was clear by the third act that they had run out of money, and uh, pretty much the only thing that you'd seen in the third act. That that was original was the Zord cockpits. That was that's basically all there was left that was original, uh, apart from the the uh, a few shots of the city streets, Sydney streets that you see at mm-hmm. the start, and uh, and that's about it. Yeah, everything else was shot on that horrible model stage, which wasn't even flat or straight. And you can see bloody, you can see blondies in the bloody windows, and oh, it's terrible for someone who knows how it works you know you just think god that looked terrible (laughs) that looks awful it looked like 10 cents
0: well the only big like standout mistake i've seen so far or wasn't even big it was i could see uh, puppeteers out there if you're going to be inside a, a skeleton costume or puppeteering a skeleton don't wear a fucking blue shirt yeah well wear black (laughs) what's wrong oh my god i saw it i'm just like oh god what what the hell why why i had nothing to do with that and uh how how do you not know to wear black so you're not seen for crying out i don't know i just it's common sense so it shouldn't be something that's like film knowledge it should you'd think that's common sense you're trying to stay hidden wear black but now you can see the friggin blue t-shirt as blue as the one i'm wearing right now of the blue ranger um but look i think i've pretty much come to the end of my notes and everything yep no thank you so much for taking your time out and and sharing this story because as i said like as a a young filmmaker myself i made my first one It was it didn't go anywhere it got stolen off me when i was 15 but i'd already knew that this film was made in australia because it was announced like in tv week or something like that and i'm like yes power rangers are going to be in australia and you know obviously seeing it and the, the center point tower was featured quite a fair bit and, and stuff like that so it always has been incredibly inspiring to me that as you say like you he, is all just basically rung around like hey we need this we're gonna work on a movie and it has that vibe of judy garland and mickey rudy like we're gonna do a play <laughs> It was a unique time in history, mate. I've
1: always felt that uh, I felt um, uh, privileged to be able to come up through the industry in Sydney at that particular time, because it's a period in history that will never be repeated. I can imagine the situation in, in Los Angeles would have been the same in the 50s and 60s. Like, you know, that industry kind of grew up there in that time. Hollywood became the place to make movies in the 50s and 60s. So it would have been, there was so much pioneering work being done in in film in that time, in that area. And this was the same. This was sort of our, our moment when we grew up and became something more than just... The little barnyard industry that we had before it, yeah. yeah, we made some great films before that. I mean,
0: oh yeah, the Mad Max and, and Mad
1: Max, and I mean,
0: I'm not denigrating the Australian film industry at all when I say that this was our first big budget film. That's not what I'm doing. We had some amazing films before this. There's one it... film that everyone hates to talk about, but I, uh, I, I kind of
1: like it as a moment in Australian history, and that is the uh, return of Captain Invincible. Have you ever heard of that film? No. Made in 1980. The director was Philip Mora, uh, and it was made in Sydney. And a number of the, shall we say, vintage seniors, including Graham Beatty, who mm-hmm. worked on Power Rangers, they got their first run on that film. Oh, there you go. And if you ever get a chance to have a look at it, it's called uh, The Return of Captain Invincible. It okay. was uh, an American film produced here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it it completely bombed at the box office. It's a comedy. Uh, completely bombed at the box office. Uh, did quite a bit of success on television in following years. Uh, yeah. When they went to television, they remixed the soundtrack. So if you ever get a chance to see it, see if you can pick up the television version because it's so much better than the original film version yeah. um, as far as the soundtrack is concerned. Looking back on the Australian film industry in a wide way, particularly in Sydney, I see that film as another one of those moments when a lot of separate items became one whole to work on something yeah. which a lot of people see as a piece of shit, a bit like Power Rangers is. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they came through that together and they survived. Yeah. And, you know, to watch it today, it's, it's an amazing picture of what things were like back then. It literally is just a looking through the keyhole. And looking through the keyhole is a good example of what I can say about filmmaking in those days overall because, um, just to wrap it up, uh, when you work on a film, a large, big-budget film, you see so much. You're, you're, in, you're immersed in a world. Power Rangers was very much like that. You're trying to create a whole world where everyone becomes immersed in the idea. Uh, Bay Pig in the City, even more so because we built the biggest... In Bay Pig in the city, we built the biggest outdoor back lot that's ever been built in Australia. So it was like a whole world that we, you know, sort of went into. And then Will Rouge, of course, which was huge as well. Um, but then you go to preview night and watch the film rolled onto the projector for the first time. It's a bit like watching your entire work through a keyhole <laughs> because you know that there's so much, but you can only watch through a tiny little keyhole. And that's what the rest of the world gets to see you, you see you feel so ripped off you think god so much more happened than that you know
0: yeah. it's like the, iceberg. It's like we the iceberg get to
1: see this tiny little bit you know yeah um so yeah the, the key old idea has always been a big one back in those days so much went on and you mm-hmm. you'd get to see just this little bit at the end you think well the rest of the world goes mad on that and you think geez, i tell you what it could have been better and even moulin rouge was the same uh you know i, I see that yes it's a great film but i, I tell you what we could have done better On a lot of things. Do you
0: reckon? I know. It still holds up today. I listened to that musical cast album from Broadway too, by the way. It's all about a stage
1: show anyway, so it wouldn't have been too hard to put on the stage. I agree.
0: No. But in terms of American films shooting over here, I think before that we'd had Quigley, Down Under and On the Beach. Yeah, yeah, On the Beach. Remember that? So that was... Pretty much about it yeah. in terms of Hollywood sending their films over here. There, m- there might have been more possibly, and like there's times where like Crocodile Dundee had American financing and stuff like that.
1: Well, Crocodile Dundee too had American financing. That's but that yeah, mostly over
0: there. But exactly. So yeah, no. Um, in terms of being. And, and American Productions sending it over here. There wasn't very much.
1: As far as offshore productions are concerned, you could probably look at that Captain Invincible film as being the first of that sort of thing. And I think because that bombed out so much, maybe everyone withdrew at that point and said, oh, if that's how it's going to turn out, let's let's not try again. Yeah. So it took them another 10 or 12 years to actually get the, the chance to try again. You know,
0: Was on the beach TV or film? That was a film. That was a film. Okay, yeah. And that was Melbourne. Yes. That was down here in Melbourne, because they also did the remake down here in Melbourne, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because the whole point is that Melbourne is the only place that survives the apocalypse. And as we've just learned through COVID, no, it's not. And that's a wrap on season one of The Creationarium. A huge thanks to Zordmaker Paul Matthews for joining me 10 years after I first approached him about sharing this story. Check the details below for a link to Paul's Power Ranger essay, where you can find out more about this rollercoaster film shoot and Paul's film career. We'll be back with another inspiring story of community spirit next season, so be sure to subscribe, like, follow and rate. And if you have an idea for a future season, be sure to hit me up on Twitter at creationarium pc or at thrash and treasure which you can also find me on the thrash and treasure podcast so if you search thrash and treasure on whatever app you're listening to right now you'll be able to find us on there another huge thanks to the boys from walkin for letting us use their song for our theme i've been aaron you take care keep creating and i'll see you next season Hooroo. It's, time. it's time to give myself Not good. I hope That's everything's okay. Started a bit late. You think you're late being an hour late? I'm 10 years late. <laughs>